0: Last, David Sedaris comes on Living Writers. <laughs> Good afternoon. Uh, I'm T Hetzel, and you're listening to Living Writers. And today in the studio, David
1: Sedaris. Um, welcome, David. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Do you always start with Etta James?
0: No, I just uh, I just picked Etta for you today. Oh, <laughs> is that all right? Yes. <laughs> She'll be going through the program with
1: us. You know, I I just got her last CD out of the library was really good was it like a, a, the sort of the collection no no. The, it was this? almost like it almost sounded a little bit country and it sounded really good I, I was just at my library in, um, in Kensington and in, in, in they have a music section there and I picked it up because I always loved her and it was, it was really good
0: Huh, I'll, have to, I'll have to go to my library and do that too. That's how I find, that's how I get them as well. That's how I got this one, actually. It was from the library. Um, not to say that, yeah.
1: But people <laughs> often apologize. like They'll say, oh, I got your book, but from the library. And then they act apologetic. Perfectly happy with people getting things from the library. No problems whatsoever with that.
0: Is it because over 22 million copies have been sold of your books?
1: <laughs> Could be that I don't really need the money, but I think oh, no. it's... I think it's that just that I've always I've always been a big library user, and I completely understand. Not everybody can afford to walk into a bookstore, and then take a chance on a book they've never by an author they've never heard of, or a book that maybe it's not uh, it's not something they would originally think is their type of thing, right? So here's a, a true life adventure story, right? But not everybody can say yeah. It's only thirty bucks, right? So, right. but one thing I don't believe in is I don't believe in people who reserve books at the library. I don't think that's fair. I think you need to go to the library and, oh, and take your chances along with everyone else. I don't think it's fair to call the library and say, oh, I want that new, I don't know, Frank McCourt book. Put it aside for me.
0: But then isn't it sort of like, aren't they sort of getting theirs in a way because then they have to wait forever until they can, because there's like a 125th on the list of people who want
1: no, but I think there's a type of person that makes sure that they're always on that list.
0: That's true. <laughs> like
1: I think they get publishers weekly, and they see what's coming out, and then they call their library and reserve it right away.
0: Or ask them to even order it, probably. Or, well, no, hopefully the libraries are buying it, right, if it's in publishers weekly. Um, what was your first library experience, you know, as, as a kid? or
1: Interestingly, I my mother used to take us to the library on weekends when I lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I remember being in... I believe I was in the fifth grade, and it was a Saturday, and it was raining outside, and my mother took my older sister and I to the library, and I used the men's room in the basement of the library, and I opened the door, and there were two black men having sex in the bathroom. And they didn't threaten me in any way. I frightened them, uh, and they left shortly afterwards. But I remember thinking, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. I always thought it was my idea to do that, with another guy's penis. I always thought that it was just completely my own private idea. And I thought, I'm not alone.
0: You could be going to the public library. (laughs) More often, suddenly your mom was
1: like, why are you so... But that's a huge thing. David, you're not even finishing the books. No, it is. I don't mean mean, to... No, it's a huge Uh, thing to learn at the library. Because (laughs) at that time, in North Carolina, there were no books about homosexuality. There were no books by by authors who were admittedly homosexual were, so it was easy to get the idea that you were the only one on earth i had no access to any kind of pornography um and again it you know when you're in the 5th grade it's not like you're, you're 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 practicing but i i mean i i i knew that i was i knew that that my interest in other guys was not shared you know the, in the same way right
0: yeah So the public library.
1: Yeah, so I learned... Fond memories. (laughs) I learned that. And then I didn't, I would have to read things for school, and I would do it, but begrudgingly. And then I, when I was 20, I was living in Oregon in a trailer. And I was picking apples, and I was living there by myself, and I was very lonely, and and, uh, I was in a small town, and I got a library card, and that's when I really started reading, when I when I discovered the joy of reading, I and,
0: and what did you start with? Like, what did you first take off the shelf and take a chance on?
1: The first book that I read was, oh, golly, I was just thinking of this book the other day, and it's the, the name of the book is uh, uh, Babbitt. 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 Is it... Was that... S- like Upton the, Sinclair. The, yes, that sounds great. Right. Nice.
0: The host of the, the I know literary I, show should probably know this.
1: I know. I wish after you that were that I here read, today. I read The Jungle. And oh,
0: oh, okay. That's Upton Sinclair, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Oh, so serious. So I started so very, reading
1: things that you were supposed to read in high school, right? And then I sort of gravitated, and I, I, had a shelf of new books, and there was a book by this fellow named Raymond Carver. Who and, and from never, that region too right but I'd never you know I didn't know anything about him and I think when I picked up that book and I read those stories I remember thinking this seems possible mm. but he he was very deceptive that way you know he made it look incredibly easy his sentences were very short he repeated words a lot he made it look like anybody could do it then of course when you tried you realized like oh that guy's R- that guy knows what he's doing.
0: And getting the emotional quantity th- through without it ever being with a two by four over your head.
1: But then reading his books and then looking at the back of his books, and then you see, I would see who blurbed his books, right? And then I That's would go read thing. their books.
0: Mm. Oh, okay. And then,
1: you know, so that led me to Joy Williams, which led me to Tobias Wolf, which led me to, led me to Barry Hanna, to. Uh, to and um, uh, on their
0: book jackets as well then. Right. As well.
1: And I didn't realize at the time that the people who blurb your books, those are actually called friends, you know, the people who who blurb your books. But I liked him and I liked his friends. And I read like that for years, just one person leading me to another, to another, to another. And again, that was all library reading because I couldn't afford. When I moved to Chicago, there was a bookstore in my neighborhood called Unabridged Books. And I remember Richard Ford came to Unabridged Books, and I could not believe that I was going to be able to see in person this, per, this, this man whose, whose books I, uh, I so loved. And uh, Tobias Wolf came, and I, I literally sat at his feet, right? I, which is where I belonged. Right? I but was that
0: weird? Were you the only one up there at his
1: feet? Or? There were other people, but I was convinced that, that they were... did not understand him the way that I did. And I still am convinced that nobody understands him the way that I do. Still? Yes. I mean, that's a bit you know how that is, fanatic, though? right, though, David? Yes. No, but you know how that is with certain. It's, it's interesting. I wouldn't. It's interesting how that is with certain public figures, right? I'm convinced that I'm the only one on earth who understands how good-looking Matt Damon is. I don't think you know <laughs> that Matt Damon is good-looking. Right. I don't think that you appreciate it.
0: That's true, because he might not rank in my top ten, perhaps.
1: Well, I, I don't I, I, I don't think... And then I, I learned how to work <laughs> the computer, and I found this site called I Met Matt. And it's all these people who write in about meeting Matt Damon and, you know, going up to him in a restaurant or whatever. And they don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand Matt Damon. They don't have that
0: connection. Like you have the through line to his his soul. You know, Not I, just his heart, but his soul.
1: I've never met the guy. I've never seen him. I don't know anything about him. I, don't, I haven't seen all of his movies, but I'm convinced. The same way I'm convinced that Whoopi Goldberg, okay, I saw her Broadway show, the first one she did, on videotape. I saw it like I don't know. I bet I I bet I sat through it 50 times. And if she does things that that aren't very good, like if she's in Hollywood Squares or whatever, I feel like I'm the only one who knows what she's really capable of. And I don't care if she were to come in here right now and slap me, wouldn't erase <laughs> the way that I, I I would still have that feeling for her. Right,
0: and suffer for her a bit for some of those moments, maybe. On Hollywood Square. Well, well
1: it's the same as sometimes, you know what? I'm... Like sometimes you'll feel that people betrayed your your trust or betrayed your your faith in them. And again, it's somebody who never met you, someone who doesn't. It's it's interesting the the relationships that we have with people that we can never know.
0: And the because it, it's the imaginative world, right? Which seems to be part of the the writers every day anyway. But then, um yeah you have these it's it's as if it's part of your identity to know them as well it's somehow they become i don't know part of, grafted onto you even though it's almost like you're picking heroes in some ways or something qualities that you like about them and by admiring them so much they they become more Yours? I don't know. Like, I had that for John McEnroe when I was a kid watching tennis. Oh, that's interesting. Well, because he was an angry kind of young man, and I was little, like I was in, I don't know, middle school, and I wasn't, I couldn't be angry, and I had to be very, like, somewhat well-behaved, and I don't know. And I think when he was at Wimbledon, I was like, that's right. Do you stick it to the English People I hope my English relatives aren't listening right now,: but... <laughs> but,
1: but he didn't come after you. You gravitated to him for some strange reason, so it, yes. it, it, that's just, it's just like I might have that feeling about Tobias Wolf and, and Matt Damon, but they didn't ask they didn't you know, ask for it.
0: And they'll never know. Well, Matt Damon might, because I'm sure you know well, I, I, one I of met, his friends is listening right now.
1: <laughs> I met Tobias Wolf. Um, But it, it wasn't At the bookshop, right? Oh, well, I met okay. him at the bookshop And I met him A friend of mine was teaching at Syracuse When he was teaching there And I was talking to her about how much I love his writing And she said, oh, you mean Toby? His big fall bash is next week You should come up to his party, right? So I took the train to Syracuse And I went to his house There was a party he was having at his house I should never meet people I admire like that. I just scare them, I think. Even if I don't say anything, I put out this sort of toxic uh, admiration fumes, right? And I think (laughs) I frighten them. But three weeks later, he came to New York on a book tour, and I waited in line to get my book signed. And I was approaching the table, and he said, David. And that meant so much to me. You know, and everybody thought that Tobias Wolf was my friend. And that was so i don't know I, I in the bookstore too when he when he came that time, he was so he, you know i i didn't i couldn't afford a hardcover of his new book, and so I had to pay- you know hit the paperbacks of his other ones and and he he gave me a you know the just the way he gave me attention I thought you know if I can ever do that, if I ever have a book, that's what i'm going to do
0: and have you been able to to do that for oh yeah remember oh, yeah. people because that would be hard because you probably okay well in terms of people remembering and, people's oh, right. names okay.
1: to be perfectly honest I'm more inclined to remember somebody um like if they have a hump or something you know like
0: <laughs> somehow I think I knew you were going
1: to say that that's really disturbing or a hook for a hand <laughs> right? you know I Something like that, and more inclined to remember. Um,
0: (laughs) Looking out your view, your vista of your Peter Pan
1: chimneys, right? But I like, I like, uh, you know. Sometimes when I when I'm on a book tour or whatever, uh, gosh, I remember a couple of years ago, the store manager came and said, you know, you need to hurry this up. And I said, well, if you know, if you want to close the store, you can go ahead and do that, and I'll give you money, and you run out and buy a card table. And you can send everybody home and I'll just sit at the card table in front of the store. Because I'm not going to speed sign and I'm not going to – I'm not going to not talk to people. Partly and partly that's for selfish reasons. You know, I met – like, I met someone last night and I said, what do you do? And he said, I have a haunted house. And I said, all year? <laughs> <And> he, <laughs> yeah, all year. <laughs> this guy has a haunted house. And I met a chime master you know who, who tolls? he he tolls right i guess he, he tolls bells somewhere at a church oh, i suppose ah. uh you
0: d- don't ask who it told no <laughs>
1: <But>. um <laughs> i i enjoy it
0: let's take a short break david and we'll be right back you're listening to living writers today david sedaris and his book which I've neglected to mention, I'm not doing my part here, When You Are Engulfed in Flames by Little Brown, just pub, just out uh, with Little Brown. Uh, we'll be right back.
2: Trust in me In all you do Have the faith I have in you Love will see us through if only you trust in me. Why don't you you trust me? Come to me when things go wrong. Cling to me, daddy. Oh yeah, and I'll be strong. We can get along, we can get along. trust in me. just smile. Trust in me. And i be worthy of you. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. What- Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. This is Living Writers. And if you're just joining us, David Sedaris is in the studio today. He's uh, currently uh Infinite it around the US with his his latest collection of essays When You Are Engulfed in Flames um When You Are Engulfed in Flames and that refers that's to the longest story doesn't it or, or is it yes. some, some more with the in the smoking section
1: Yes the, I was in uh, Hiroshima and I was in a hotel and there was a book in my hotel called Best Knowledge of Disaster Damage Prevention and Favours to Ask of You and then it was broken into little chapters you know paragraph long chapters when you check in a hotel when you find a fire and when you are (laughs) engulfed in flames
0: oh but such a different meaning
1: with where you found it too right right when you think about it in hiroshima um but it's funny too like that you would be engulfed in flames and you would think damn what did i read in that that book what did i read in that book
0: But you seem to have a steel trap like you're you're rattling off these long pieces of, you know, like titles and name and and you do it in your your book as well. Like one of them I thought was great when you you said that um, when you bought the medical uh, forensic dictionary or book that showed. Oh, uh, medical
1: legal investigations of death.
0: Yes, and and you said that the captions you thought were priceless—they could be made into poems. That was like one of your extensive mildew on the face of a recluse. I was <laughs> thinking <laughs> about
1: that for the title of the book, but you'd have to have the picture, and and and, and that could be expensive, right? Like the royalties on that. No, just well, but this book, right? Which seems to me, it's a Van Gogh painting. The cover, and I saw it many years ago at the Van Gogh Museum. I saw the. I've postcard. always wanted to go there. Well, I just saw the postcard, right, because I, I just like museum gift shops. And I thought, when I saw it, I thought, oh, I'd like that as my book cover. And it's a picture of a skeleton from the, from the shoulders up smoking a cigarette, right? But getting this on a book cover was so hard that getting a dead man, a dead recluse with extensive <laughs> milk going on his face, I can't imagine. That would be a breeze. That No, that would have been so hard. Oh, they okay. never would have let me. But I think extensive mildew on the face of a recluse. I, I think it's a really good title for a book.
0: Did you memorize the poem that you, the subsequent poem you wrote from that?
1: Oh, behold the recluse looking pensive. Mildew though is quite extensive on his head, both fore and on his head, both aft and fore. He. I, mildew though is obviously I don't quite. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> he maybe should have got out more.
0: Maybe, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Um, I wish I had, yeah, he maybe should have got out more. Yeah. That was the nice, nice pacing there. The should have. Uh. But, um, so, so are you, are you also writing um, in, in other genres? Because you've, you've completely got this, this one nailed, obviously. And the, this American life pieces that you do for NPR. um.
1: I've been working on these stories. I'm working on a book about little stories about animals, right? So they're I, I want to call them fables, but fables I think are a lot sharper in their morals. These are a little bit fuzzy near the end. Um and they are all around the same length.
0: Fuzzy fables. A new <laughs> a new category.
1: Or <laughs> unstable fables. Unstable fables. <laughs> I, th- but what I think it was a way of getting back into fiction writing, an easy way to get back into fiction writing. Like if I were to say that – oh, I don't know. If I were to write that uh, T and Jesse went out to lunch, right, I have to describe you and I have to describe Jesse. But if I say the squirrel and the chipmunk went out to lunch, everybody knows what a squirrel and a chipmunk look like. And I set up rules for myself. I was not going to give any of the animals names. It's the squirrel and the chipmunk. And I just – often I think if I'm having a problem, I'll take – I try to take a step back and write a story uh, like an animal story that way. You know, if something's really bothering me and I think, well, you know, what's really bothering me is that I'm being vain. That That's the whole problem. That That's where all this problem comes from is I'm being vain or I'm being stupid or I'm jealous of somebody. So, and it, it, okay. It so, might be, a present
0: situation in your life, not yes. related to the what's happening in the writing itself.
1: Though. No, no, no. Okay. The present situation in my life, and then I, I'll just uh, sort of use these stories as a way of making fun of myself, I suppose, and lightening my burden that way. Like I just finished a story about a really ugly fox, and then I finished <laughs> another story <Nice> about one. <laughs> a male ladybug. But nice. then after I wrote about the male ladybug, I remembered that movie Bugs. I haven't seen that. It's, but at, I know it's what that mean. Pixar movie?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I thought, damn it, because there's a male ladybug in that. Uh. So I thought I could change it to a male damselfly or a there's... female man of war.
0: Mm.
1: But uh, then it's the whole setting is yeah. But the whole thing, <laughs> it's so ladybuggy. So I'll just yeah, keep it. I'll you just can't suddenly it.
0: throw them in the ocean and then, right. and then put a raft in a tiger. Well, then the it. hard
1: thing, too, is it... So in this ladybug story, right? It's a female ladybug, and then somebody's chatting her up, right? I mean, it's a male ladybug, but someone thinks it's a female, and it's chatting her up, right? So I had an aphid chatting her up. <laughs> and I didn't realize, I did some research, ladybugs eat aphids, right? So that's not going to happen, right? So... And then I had an ant in there, right, with the aphid and the ladybug. And I did not realize that ants eat something called honeydew. And honeydew is a liquid that they massage out of, of, a, of an aphid's rectum. <laughs> an ant will massage an aphid's rectum and then get the sweet juice out of it and then live off of it. But it doesn't – it's like milking, the aphid's butt, right, right, basically, is what it does.
0: <laughs> That's a good visual there. Good for radio,
1: David. <laughs> um, so that wouldn't work, you know, <laughs> because if an ant and an aphid right. were together,
0: other things would be the happening. Would just the ladybug would not be involved. Right. Right. Yeah.
1: So, or the <laughs> story about the fox. I thought, okay, the fox's sister had got. She was. Sexually assaulted, and she had a baby, right? But I didn't realize foxes just can't have babies whenever. Like there's a time of year when foxes have babies. So that meant I had to switch the season in my story. So There's always something, even though you think it's fiction, right? Well, whenever you publish a <laughs> story, famous. like in the New Yorker or whatever, you, you've always got some little expert out there somewhere, right? Who So... And they're always the first person. Like when I get back to when I get back home, there will be a stack of letters from grammarians, who will have found typos, or grammatical errors in my book, and they love to write you. They. they But why
0: don't they just write the publisher? Because that's their deal. Like your 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 gig is coming up with the the content, and it doesn't. And it might be something you intended as well.
1: Right? No, they want they want you to know. Like I I wrote this thing in the New Yorker. I gave it the commencement speech at Princeton a couple of years ago, so I wrote this thing in The New Yorker it was my it was a, my, basically my commencement speech right? what
0: I've learned no. yeah oh, yeah it's called was what I School. learned
1: okay. and I got a message on my answering machine in London, and this guy looked me up and he said, I am so sick to death of your and the New Yorkers' constant h and y uh h and y <laughs> what was it he said. Uh, not backstabbing, but something like that. And he went on and on and on and on. And I realized he meant Harvard and Yale. So this guy sees a pattern in The New Yorker. (laughs) A conspiracy. The New Yorker, right, is against Harvard and Yale. And I'm part of that conspiracy.
0: Right, right. But it
1: was funny that he said (laughs) anti-H and Y. Because in
0: his world, of course, everyone would know what that meant, right? Like in his narrow world where it's, He's kind of hemmed in by all the ivy but you hate to make
1: i mean he, he was just a nut but like just in terms of a regular story you hate to make that sort of mistake so yeah th- that's a good thing about having things in the new yorker because like i had the story about spiders in the new yorker and
0: was that april in paris yes. is that one okay
1: and my fact checker at the new yorker contacted me and said all right we've well, written in this story that this spider is the size and shape of an unshelled peanut and it's actually not that shape. So I suggest you change it to something else. And I and I said, no, I peanut's something that you can have in your mind and the color was right.
0: Yeah. And um, so, so you kept it. Because I think I remember you saying peanut in here.
1: And I'd written that the spider became obese and its her feet tore holes in the web. But oh, right. that doesn't happen either. But that's just what we call a joke.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I so are you finding yourself saying that more and more recently to people because I hadn't I hadn't read the I guess somebody like hurts the guy heard or someone who wrote the article saying that he fact-checked
1: things like from
0: from your one of your earlier books naked right and saying all oh, this couldn't possibly be true and you know and and with well, he went to North
1: Carolina with the, the naked right thinking hitchhike with a quadriplegic indeed found out a hitchhike with a quadriplegic nudist colony indeed found out i had been to a nudist colony so <laughs> all the, basically all the stuff that he was checking turned out to be true so then he went like then he went a little bit deeper like i worked at a mental institution when i was 15 and i said the buildings were gothic they're tuscan revival
0: So that was his, that's what he had on you. That
1: was his big, (laughs) that was his big thing. Another thing was I had, I went to speech class when I was in elementary school and I'd referred to speech class as future homosexuals of America. He contacted my (laughs) elementary school principal and said, did you round up suspected homosexuals and send them to speech class? And the guy said, no, but I meant that as a joke. It didn't occur to me that anybody would take that think seriously. think that, that was
0: actually your indictment of the whole thing. He called,
1: uh, I went to a nudist colony. He called the nudist colony, uh, nudist, senior citizens nudist trailer park. And he <laughs> said, David Sedaris was there and he wrote about it and, and according to him, you're all kooks and oddballs. And this woman said, we are just like everybody else and anyone who says different is a big fat liar. Well, she's She was naked sitting in a room with her full-grown son. I mean...
0: If but she was he, like
1: everybody else, yeah. she'd have had her clothes on. <laughs> right. Exactly.
0: But he was like, he got the soundbite he wanted probably, Big right. Fat Liar. So that was nice to drop in somewhere.
1: But I, I mean, I've always been upfront about the way that I write. You know, I mean, also, this is a book that he was fact-checking in which my mother is driving and she hits a cat with her car and the cat dies, comes back to life and speaks English. So right. the fact that it includes some exaggeration
0: didn't seem like front-page news
1: to me. Right. Um, But, you know, I think there's a... I mean, I've never presented myself as a reporter. I've never tried to get a reporting job. I've never, you know, applied... uh, But I think there's a difference. I think there is a difference between writing... You know, there are people who write nonfiction and there are people who call what they write nonfiction. And I'm in that latter group. But... I was always, nonfiction was a word that we were allowed to use until, I don't know. I mean, now I think people are trying to change that rule, but...
0: But only in the last couple of years, because I think there was that boom in it where everyone was happy to call it creative nonfiction, at least in writing programs, you know, so that was sort of a nod to that. But But I
1: think there's this belief that if you, I think there's this belief that your publisher says to you, well, if you call it fiction... We're going to... Right. Then yeah. you can sell 10 times more copies. And my publisher never, ever pushed me one way or the other. But don't they say that about memoir
0: other. now? Like that was what, like if memoirs will sell more. I. But only in the last decade.
1: I mean, there were there were a lot of memoirs written over the past decade. And, I, and, my, my, and my feeling is that people decided, that, not people decided they were sick of them, but I think... Certain editors of magazines and newspapers decided they're sick of them, and so...
0: But I would never put your books in a memoir category.
1: I don't think I've ever written one. No. Um, The, the truth is, is in there. It's all in the... But if you're writing about something that happened 20 years ago, or if you're writing about something that happened two weeks ago, I suppose, I mean, you're remembering it, right? So I, I suppose in that sense... The only people who aren't writing memoir are people who are doing blogs, right, who are writing about what's happening just in the, moment. in the moment. But I don't know. I always need sort of some time to pass. But I guess my feeling is if I'm going to make stuff up, then I'm going to write about an ugly fox. You know. I guess I, I write a story. I put it on the scale. I say 97% of it is true. And that's that's an acceptable level for all kinds of like drugs and fuels and stuff. I mean, it's really high acceptable <laughs> for cocaine. Do you know what I mean? If you right. had cocaine that was 97% pure, that's really great. But I wouldn't... That's a good way to measure writing too, David. But I guess there are people who would say, okay, well, if that 3% isn't true, then you need to call it fiction. But mm-hmm. I don't I don't think for 3% I would call it fiction. Because
0: um, that seems untrue to say that then.
1: Uh, well, I mean, I, I, but I don't, I mean, I think, too, that I don't think that my audience is, is listening to me or reading me to learn, oh, I don't know, like, what the buildings were like at this mental institution in North Carolina. I mean, I, that's, a that's what called a mistake. That's not called a lie. It's called a mistake. And I. And it's sloppy of me.
0: But it's close enough for government work. I mean, Gothic, Tuscan revival.
1: Well, I was embarrassed by that, and I probably should have. I should have looked it up. But I don't think that it was evidence enough to call me a liar.
0: Mm-mm. We're going to take a short break, and we'll come right back with David Sedaris, his book, When You Are Engulfed in Flames. <laughs>
2: I'll make your life full
0: of happiness. Welcome back. If you're just joining us today on Living Writers, um, I'm speaking with David Sedaris. I, I should have mentioned that this is a taped show, so uh, June 9th. Uh, but, uh, but David, thank you for coming to the studio and talking to me while you're on. On tour for the book,
1: yes, I'm on a book tour
0: is it are you sort of you're sort of at the beginning of it, right? I or started
1: in I started a week ago, okay, but I like a book tour, like it. What? I mean, I think if you go on a book tour and there are eight people in the audience, I think there's nothing harder on earth, but if there are eight hundred people, it's easy
0: but that's but the eight people thing that doesn't happen to you anymore, does it? I wouldn't think no. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Because I don't want to sit here and feel sorry for for any reason at all. No. But I think it's still like I don't know. With but if it's eight people, that still could be like they could be the most intelligent or phenomenal. Well, that's eight what people you would have to tell universe. yourself.
1: But you know, when you when you're in a bookstore, right? If if you're reading in a bookstore, what you want is whether you're in a bookstore or in a theater or anywhere, you want people to listen and pay attention. But if that you're going energy. and and then there are people like who are just there shopping and just sort of looking at you and walking away or talking on their cell phones. Or someone's really making espresso
0: too. Or right. Espresso. Or they don't
1: turn the intercom system off or it, it's, <laughs> I went to the Philippines on a book tour uh, a couple of years ago and I did an event and it said, Oh, you're going to be reading at the like, uh, such and such, such mall, Makati mall. Right. So I thought they meant a bookstore in the mall, but they just meant the mall. Like, there's a fountain, and then I'm next to the fountain. <laughs> Pizza slices. <And laughs> Get they your had, hot donut holes. They had uh, a microphone set up, and they, they were chairs, and there were people sitting in the chairs, but then there were just people kind of shopping and, like, on the next level and looking down at me, too, and moving on. And, and, and I, it's okay to visit that, you know? and especially in another country i mean every time i go to another country i'm sort of starting over so it's it's actually good to remember that to remember what it's like
0: yeah it shocks something into you so you things get in get to you again right well i
1: always appreciated you know i i i, I sincerely and genuinely appreciate uh people showing up but it's good then to go without it so then you really super appreciate it
0: yeah yeah I, okay i see you what- well, let's talk a little bit about um, your story in when you are engulfed in flames. That's amore, where because. Um, because actually, when I I teach uh, college writing here, uh, s- some terms, not every term, but um, and one of, I use one of your stories from *Me Talk Pretty One Day* to when we're moving from when the students, um, I'm trying to show them we we start with details and then we move into considering voice, and which is kind of exciting I think for college freshmen because you know the five paragraph essay has sort of uh, pounded quite right. quite a bit of voice out of there probably. Um, but anyway, so I was thinking how your story, so I'm sort of fishing for stories for other future terms. And I was thinking that's Amore is a wonderful character study because it's, it's about a, a former neighbor of yours, Helen. Right. Um, I, and I don't know what, it's, she's dead by the end of the story. So I'm, I can only think that in a way this was some sort of uh, memorial to Helen writing this story or.
1: She died in 1997. And I wrote a story about her in 1999 that was in Esquire. And I knew that at the time that I published it that, that it was too early. Because um, something can happen and then it, uh, you have to get a certain – me anyway – get a certain distance away from it. right? And then and then you think, oh, I'm at the right distance to write about Mrs. Peacock now. You know, like 42 years after I last saw her. <laughs> or I'm at the right point. And every summer – Every summer I would go back to that story about Helen, and, uh, and I think I just had to be able to put her in a certain perspective, but she was a neighbor of ours, and it's, it's interesting, like someone said a few days ago, why were you friends with that horrible person? And I said, what horrible person? I mean, she did a lot of really heinous things, <laughs> but she was funny, and you don't ever want to write. So-and-so was funny. She made me laugh. I think it's best to just show them being funny. And to me, I did show her being funny. But if that's not your idea of funny, I can't help you. Right. I can't help you. I mean, if you don't think that it's funny to attack a deaf mute, I I can't help you. (laughs)
0: And how she actually threw her shoulder out in the process, and that was one of the more tender <laughs> moments in the story the day after when you were rubbing the tiger bomb on her, yeah, that was great that was um no, I think, but that's but that's what I think is is wonderful in in these these details that you choose because also um writing about something that's emotional uh with this this gravity, like how do you write? She made me laugh. you don't do that you you piece together these these moments these these
1: um these the sort of vignettes stories. actually i mean it's all stuff that i had in my diary i mean but i and then it became a question of what to remove because there were there were quite a few things about helen
0: and what are connected to deepen what you mean from the story right that's what you would keep is well,
1: that what you do well, well there, there were other things about helen that i think if i had written that people wouldn't forgive her they wouldn't be able to forgive her i could forgive her because she lived right across the hall and it was it's, it was too uncomfortable to go without talking to her. I didn't want an enemy that close. Of course, um, she,
0: she provided some sort of um, stability for you, like or consistency to your life.
1: Well, I think, too, that for, sometimes with, with people like that, when they do really horrible things, it depends. Like, Helen was the kind of person who was so angry, so full of rage, that my disapproval wasn't going to add anything to it. I mean, she was already so unhappy on one level that w- what was my disapproval gonna do at all was it gonna make me feel like a better person
0: Wait, um this tell me if this is not a question like if you don't like this question but sure. i was wondering like why why didn't the story let go of you like you felt like you'd written it too early and then but it, it's it wasn't something that went away either um so, so we can talk about revision too, but but I'm wondering if it isn't because there's a, a moment in the story where um, she she asks you to come and there's some a stain on her her ceiling right with the the white shoe polish I think it was or something or shoe right. polish uh, she
1: or, was convinced that there was dog urine on her ceiling from the people upstairs and she wanted me to cover her ceiling in white shoe polish and I just wasn't in the mood that day and I laughed and she tried to do it herself the following morning and she fell off the ladder and she broke her hip and then she had sent to the hospital and then had strokes in the hospital and she died a few months later. And, you know, I've always been thinking, like, why couldn't I put the damn shoe polish on her ceiling? Um, But at the same time, I believe that... I mean, Helen was really sort of preparing for that. She got rid of just about everything. She would show me what she wanted to wear in her casket, you know, the dress that she wanted to wear. She couldn't leave her house anymore. She was ready.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I think, because I, because I think there's this moment in the story, which I think um, by building everything else around it, it's a quiet moment, but it's this, uh, when I think one of the neighbors said, why, like, why did she, or why did she do it? Or what would make her do? Why would she be polishing her shoes on a stool? And you were like,
1: something like uh,
0: beats me yeah and I think that's like that moment where it's like a really a human moment which would be because in the whole anything can happen at any time to us good or bad right like the the the, in the universe but but that moment that's a human moment that you include which I think takes also a lot of guts because you're you're writing there in that quiet moment like oh I don't know but you did know and this is story is that's one of the layers to it. Or maybe I'm making well, too much of I'm something. Very,
1: <laughs> okay. I'm very lucky that I have a really good editor because I, that moment when I say, um, that, that moment when, when our neighbor Joe you know, wonders why anybody would polish their shoes on a, and, a, and I say, beats me, it was phrased in a different way so that it was more designed for me to get a laugh. And my editor said, you know what, I think this is too loud and I think you need to make this more quiet and I need you need to give you need to give the world this moment instead of like yourself. And it was a really good it was a good call.
0: Yeah. So how do you balance that with the humor? Because I in some of the stories I do I wonder if you're like do you feel pressure to bring it to that even if there's like a gravity to the story, does that then up the pressure to bring some more humor into it. to
1: Well, like that story, I went to the United States. Usually I go on these lecture tours every fall and every spring. Every October and, and every April, generally, I go to like 30 cities in 30 days.
0: Oh, that must be great.
1: Well, it I is. mean, and
0: Tyrene, but great.
1: No, it's good opportunity to work on stories. But then I had some stories, some like the story about smoking and the story about Helen. Um, after my tour last fall, I went back, to Europe and in November and December I, I worked on smoking and then Helen and I wanted a chance to try it out in front of an audience so I went to the Steppenwolf Theater for a week and then I went to UCLA for a week and that helped a lot because I could read about Helen and then I could get a laugh and then I would think well, what would happen if I went without this laugh and because I already proved that I could get it if and once you prove that you can get it, then you can get rid of it, right? But if you never got it to begin with, then you feel like, like, like you're not good enough, right? So th- that's what those tours are good for, is that they help me. There's, I think, okay, because uh, like my sister used to be at Second City, right? And I would go and I would see Amy on stage, and I would and I would see the Second City show, and I would laugh, laugh, laugh. But then I would leave and I didn't remember anything right i mean i remember thinking oh god that guy's really funny and you know and
0: so that's when the pacing comes into it like the rhythm of letting the story be itself kind of in these places where there are quiet moments is that is
1: that what you mean well i think Stable? it's like i if if you just interject some like good old sorrow into it i think that that's what sort of makes it more memorable right i mean but it, how it gives the that? story a little bit of weight i think
0: and how did, how to because to inject the sorrow, like how?
1: Well, with Helen, like, I mean, it wasn't like, it was never formulaic. I mean, it was just sort of already there. And then it was just sort of, I've never driven, but I think it was sort of like letting your foot off one pedal and, and laying it on the other or whatever. Or let, letting you, taking both your feet off the pedals and realizing, oh, that's what happens now. That's mm. what, I mean, this is.
0: It's the natural momentum for a moment or
1: well I, I guess it was trying to, to uh i I mean the stuff that Helen said was you know I mean a lot of what she said was just super funny i mean it was just funny to me, but you know how that can be like somebody can say something really funny and then you reali- you hear them say the same thing two minutes later to somebody else, and then you realize that it's they're kind of that it's their bit and that they're actually like a lonely person um You know, just, I guess, letting those parts show, I suppose, every now and then. And then with myself, too. I mean, I think the story was about, not just about Helen, but my relationship with Helen and what I needed at that time. And she was just there. You know, she was just there for whoever could stand her. Literally,
0: you couldn't get away from her because she'd be at your door at 8 a.m. or something,
1: right? (laughs) Yeah, she would call pretty much every morning
0: david (laughs) david if i didn't
1: if i didn't pick up the phone
0: everyone's adjusting their radio dial um and so so with revision david because that sounds like then you have these uh like skeletons of this the stories for a while like how many like what what's a what's a process for one of your stories in your book collections what's the process of revision on that like how 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 many drafts would you – is that impossible? Like
1: I'm going on a lecture tour in October, right? So I have these two so, – so far these two stories that I've written, two essays that I've written for the lecture tour, right? And I've written them both three times. And I'm going to write rewrite them after my book tour is over.
0: Yes, with those notes from the – What you've told us about the audience.
1: No, no, because I'm not going to read them out loud on my book tour. Because when you're on a book tour, you're kind of supposed to read from the book. So I have little short things that I'm reading. But these are stories that are like 10, 12 pages long. So I rewrite them a few more times. And there have been a couple of times when I've given things to my editor at The New Yorker. and, And they've been published before I got a chance to read them in front of a live audience. And I don't like to do that. Because... One good thing about reading out loud in front of an audience is then my editor will say, mm, I think you can cut this. And, and then I'm able to say, actually, that's the biggest laugh in the whole story. right? Or, Or I can agree with him and I know that he's right. I just like to learn as much as I can on my own before I give it to my editor. Because I would never give my editor a first draft because then by the eighth draft, he's really going to be sick of it. So I'd rather give him the eighth draft and work with him. Until the 12th.
0: And this is someone who is trusted. Like, it's, it sounds like it's the same person. You know, I'm so like lo- It's the same person.
1: Okay. But but uh, I got the galleys for a book maybe, I don't know, shoot, maybe like eight years ago, right? A book um, called The Columnist. And they were fake memoirs of a conservative political columnist. And I, I howled with laughter. And it was by a guy named Jeffrey Frank. And then when I started working with The New Yorker a lot... They said, "Oh, we, you know, we're going to assign you an editor. This guy, his name is Jeffrey Frank, and I was so so. It worked <laughs> out great because I had already was familiar with him and had had so admired his novel. And it's
0: like you had a connection, like Tobias Wolf. like you had had a connection yeah, with him,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, a little secret one, and then it became formal. But he's he's really good, and I, I love working with him. But the fellow I used to work with at Esquire, he left and he went to GQ. But that was another situation where." really really love working with him so I've, I've been very lucky and with IRA you know it's the same thing so I've been I, I, I wish I can't really when people talk about how awful the redditors are I i really can't relate I'm, I'm very fortunate that way
0: knock wood that's good that's actually nice. the
1: only time I ever had like a bad one it's that <laughs> fellow who wrote the article for the new republic Oh, really? Um, He was working at the New York Times Magazine for a while, and I was asked to write about a TV show. And I wrote about the story Cops, and then the story came out, and parts of it were rewritten. Without? No,
0: I was not asked.
1: Like the word uh, hooker was used. And I would never, I mean, I'd used the word prostitute, and he changed it to hooker. I mean, I guess he thought that it was, it was somebody else thinking, oh, it'd be funny to do this. But it's like I'll be the judge of that, right? Please, but that's. <laughs> and you, but weirdly and, enough, that was the only bad experience I ever had.
0: And you and and well, and you will be the judge, David Sedaris. You will be the
1: judge. Thank you so much for being on Living Writers. Well, I'm glad I could make it while I was still alive. <laughs> Me too. Um, that's been my new thing to say, because uh, we went to Italy. So no vecchio, and that means I'm old in Italian. <laughs>
0: Oh, lovely well thank you David Sedaris Um, his book When You Are Engulfed in Flames Um, David come back anytime please (laughs) I would love to thank Um, you T (laughs) and thanks to Jesse Johnston for uh, engineering Uh, this has been the Living Writers T Hetzel until next time
2: Don't cry, baby Dry your eyes And let's be sweethearts again And oh, cause you know You know I didn't mean To ever treat you so mean Sweetheart And let's try it over again Whoa. Here is an important announcement. At six o'clock this evening, BBC and the IBA will cease. Here is an important announcement. At six o'clock this evening, all existing services of the BBC and the IBA will cease. Here is an <laughs> Everything. After an attack, you may have to stay in. In fact, you're far better off because it's the place you know and where you are. In fact,
3: you're far better off because it's the
2: place you know and where you are. In fact, you're where
0: you are. So stay where you are. So stay Stay where you
2: are. Stay
0: where, to you, to are. Stay
2: where to to you are. So stay where you are. you Ann Arbor. They will be replaced by a new radio traffic service. service. They will be replaced by a new radio service.
0: weird music odd music wonderful music
1: listen to robot pasta it's freeform sprinkled with cheese
3: served every saturday from 5 to 7 p.m right here on wcbn 88.3 fm ann arbor off to the right of Jordan
0: Pierce. It's a huge face-off here. Michigan can win it. Caparuso will be the man. He wins it back to the blue line for Matera. He'll dump it into the corner. Narado down low for Turnbull. Turnbull out in front. Puck is loose. It just went wide. Cap- food Gathers is Washington County's food rescue and food bank program. Every day throughout the year, we fight hunger where we live. Call us at 761-2796 to find out how you can volunteer, how you can donate money, how you can donate food. Call us at 761-2796 to find out the role you can play in fighting hunger. They're cats. America's most popular pets, but also the pet most likely to die prematurely from disease, poison, animal abuse, and collision with vehicles because many people let their cats roam freely. To protect your cats from harm, please keep them indoors. A safe cat is a happy cat.
2: You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Stay tuned, the news will be up in four minutes.
3: Кали си припомни Нов път всеки ден Напред намери Как обича, че да се катериш Котката в Орел Днес превърни Измен та Да излети С бъдещето си Ако играеш This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, June 18, 2008. From Eugene, Oregon, I'm Jess Burns. In today's program, Israelis and Palestinians slowly wade into a shaky ceasefire. Teachers in Chile end a three-day strike with calls for meaningful education reform. And following massive flooding in Iowa, levees continue to break along the Mississippi River downstream. All this and more, but first, these news headlines. I'm Shannon Young with the headlines. President Bush today called on Congress to lift the federal ban on offshore drilling and open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil companies. Bush says the move would help to alleviate high gas prices and the domestic dependence on foreign oil. Republican presidential candidate John McCain, who opposes opening ANWR to drilling, told an audience in Houston yesterday that he supports reversing the 27-year ban on offshore drilling. The push for offshore drilling and exploration in the protected Arctic Reserve comes as the country's strategic petroleum reserve is filled to 97 percent capacity. The European Parliament has voted in legally binding targets for the recycling of waste by all
0: member states. Naomi Fowler reports from London. Europe generates nearly two billion tonnes of waste a year. That's an average of three and a half tonnes a person. But under the new rules, 50% of waste from households and 70% of hazardous materials are to be recycled by 2020. Those member states that don't comply could face legal action. In order to